I would encourage you this morning to take your Bible and turn into the Minor Prophets to the book of Nahum. It's not a book that we do a lot of preaching from, and yet it's very important in this Minor Prophet series. Some of you might be like me, and that's a frustrating thing, and I'm sorry, but some of you may be like me. I am a person who doesn't like open-ended stories. I want things to come to an ending. I want things to wrap up. I want them to come to a conclusion. I want to believe that in the end, it'll all be worked out. I, I want the guy and the girl to fall in love. I want the relationship to last. I need completion. About a month ago, we ended one of the minor prophets, and it ends with an open-ended situation. If you're like me, you're very frustrated with the way the book of Jonah ends. Jonah's up there wanting the Ninevites to get smashed, and God just says, Jonah, shouldn't I have compassion on people who who can't even tell their left hand from their right? Shouldn't I have compassion on even the animals? And then it ends. What happens to the Ninevites? What happens to Jonah? It's, it's, it's not complete. Nahum is kind of the sequel. If I were doing a movie, it would be 100 years after Jonah, there's Nahum. Nahum brings the sequel. Now, Nahum tells us what's going to happen. It's still a few years after him that it does, but Nahum is the sequel. You know, we, could, we look at Nineveh and we go, what happened to Nineveh? What changed in their world? What difference did it make in the long run? A hundred years ago, a hundred years ago in this great city, there was joy because they had been saved from near destruction. They had listened. They had listened to this prophet who had been three days in the digestive track of a great fish and when he came out his skin was blanched and white and he came walking and trudging into the city and he said God's going to destroy this city in 40 days and they listened from the king down to the least of them they listened and they changed and they repented but that was a hundred years ago a hundred years ago, there was dancing in the streets because of the realization that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had spared them. That God in His grace had shown compassion to them. But that was a hundred years ago. In the ensuing 100 years, they had not only been a great city, they had become the capital of the nation of Assyria. And now it's 645 B.C. For crying out loud, these are modern times. These are the times when things have advanced. The, the, the past century, we had been, Nineveh had gotten along very well without the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, their gods were so powerful, they had overrun the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had, they had 
just completely destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They had sent them all out to exile. Nobody was left except a few. They, were, they had destroyed the fortified cities of Judah. They had, they had started to come into Judah and take over. Who needs the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We are getting along very fine, thank you. In fact, one of their kings, Esar Haddon, was his name, made this boast at one point. He said, I am powerful. I am omnipotent. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. And nobody in the known world at that time had the power to do anything about it. Now, at first blush, we say, how could they forget? How could they, how could they forget what God had done? How could they forget being uh, spared? How, how could they do that? And yet, I would say, like Nineveh, most of us all too often can forget the work of God in our lives. All too often we approach God with kind of a what have you done for me lately approach. The prophet Nahum was focused on the city of Nineveh. As I said earlier, by this time it had become the capital of Assyria. So by bringing God's judgment on the capital of Assyria, what he's doing is bringing God's judgment on the empire of Assyria. His message is not a pretty message. His message is a message of death and destruction and divine wrath and retribution. But, as with any part of God's word, when we really look at it, we learn not only about what God thinks, about what God's going to do, we learn about God and how we can respond to him. Today, on this pro as we look at this prophecy, I want to explore some of the characteristics about God, and, and I think we'll be left with one final reality. When it comes to our relationship with God, there's no middle, middle ground. We either love him or we don't. We serve him or we don't. He doesn't leave us a lot of wiggle room. The first nine verses of chapter one of Nineveh, and by the way, Nineveh, or Nineveh of Nahum, by the way, Nahum is the only minor prophet that refers to itself as a book. So it may have been that he uttered his prophecies about Nineveh, but then he wrote them down. And so it says, a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. We don't know much about Nahum. We don't know where Elko was, but we have it here in God's word. And in the first nine verses in this prophecy give us a portrait of God. We're going to get kind of an overview that I'm going to circle back and we're going to look at it in more detail. We find in verses 2 through 6, look at these descriptors of God. Verse 2, God is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance. The Lord is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance for his, on his foes. He vents his wrath against his enemies. 
That's not a politically correct, user-friendly picture. God is a God that deals with things in a final way. But let's get the rest of the picture. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. When Nineveh describes that, he's, he's actually, or when Nahum, i got to say Nahum, not Nineveh, okay. When Nahum describes that, he's actually reaching back to God's own description of himself in Exodus chapter 34. When Moses wanted to know who God is, and, and, God, and he said, I want to see you. And God said, you can't see me. But I will pass by you, and you can see, because if you see me face to face, you won't live. But I'll pass by you, and you'll see me as I pass by, as I've walked on by. And as he passes by, God says, the Lord, the Lord, the great God who's full of compassion and slow to anger, who forgives. And so Nahum reaches back, and he says, this is who God is. He's a God who who is slow to anger, he's great in power. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He is a God of justice. And he talks about how his way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds and the dust at his feet. You get this idea that he is completely over all of nature. He rebukes the sea, he dries it up, he makes the rivers run dry. The mountains quake before him. We just read about that. Why don't I fear when the mountains quake and melt into the sea? Because God is the God who can make the mountains quake and fall into the sea. He then is my refuge. Who can withstand his indignation? No one. Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. And then all of a sudden the prophet says, the Lord is good. In all of that, you get all of this turmoil and everything and power and you stop and you say, the Lord is good. The word good literally means he's friendly. He's desirable. He's pleasurable. He's morally good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He's a safe place. You've sought refuge before, haven't you? If you live in this area, for us it's Pleasant Hill Elementary School, at Tuesday, the first Tuesday of the month at 10 o'clock, the sirens go off just to test. But if it's not Tuesday, the first Tuesday of the month at 10 o'clock, and those sirens go off, then if you live near here, you're headed to the basement or you're headed to a place in your house. It might not, you might not have a basement, but you have an inner room, a place that you say, okay, this is the safest place if a tornado hits. I grew up in Kansas. I, I'm familiar with tornadoes. I'm familiar with being in the basement. In fact, I got really smart when I was in fourth grade. I moved to the basement. It wasn't about the tornadoes. It was just being on my own, you know, big guy, nine years old, get my own room in the basement. You know, but we seek refuge. God says, I'm your refuge, especially in times of trouble. We get to verse 8 and we, we understand that here's this God who cares for us, who cares for those who trust in him. We will circle back to that as well. But... For Nineveh, look at verse 8, there's this overwhelming flood. He's going to make an end to Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. God says, 
I'm going to pursue Nineveh. They don't have a refuge anymore. They have gone far against me. We are, this, this prophecy comes at the height of Assyrian power. I'm going to describe a little bit of that and keep it as G-rated as I can as we move on. But then we get to this verse 9. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. It's very interesting, that particular verse. Because it, it could, it, 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 is it speaking about, and commentators go back and forth. Some say they're speaking, he's speaking about Israel's enemies. Some say he's speaking about the nation itself. Some say it's both. It could literally be translated this way. Instead of whatever they plot against the Lord, it could literally be translated, what do you think about the Lord? Now, the two go very well. Because if I'm plotting against the Lord, I don't think very highly of him. I think he can be plotted against. But I like that phrase, what do you think about the Lord? What do you think about God? Because what you think about God matters. What you think about God matters. If you think God is just another God among gods that you can put on the shelf and they all kind of come around at the same at times when you need them, then you've reduced God. What do you think about God? Whenever I come across that idea, I'm always reminded of a a book written many years ago by the uh, late A.W. Tozer. It's Knowledge of the Holy. And early on in that book, he makes this statement. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. What you think about God matters. What I think about God matters. Some of us want a good and safe God. We, don't, we want a just God who's good and safe, but we don't want the avenging God. We don't want the God who, who gets angry and punishes sin. We don't want to think about God being a God of wrath. We just want Him to be good and safe and kind and gracious and loving. And the reality is you can't have one without the other. God is saying to the nation of Nineveh, and He's reminding His own people of Israel that I am the God who is perfect and just and holy. You see, the people of Judah have their faults. And God, like a loving parent, is aware of the fact that his kids have their faults. He's called them a stiff-necked, stubborn generation at times. He, He gets it. But Assyria has become the international bully. They have become the international bully. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. Uh, You know... And at my stage of life, it's you mess with my kids or you mess with my grandkids, then we're in trouble. You're in trouble. I am going to come at you with everything I've got. Now, I have to remember that vengeance is not mine, so I have to, I have to tame it down a little bit. But, uh, man, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a papa bear. I'm a protector. God says, I'm a protector. You don't mess with my kids. And, and when you turn to him for safety... He not only can provide it, he has the power to do so. What we think about God matters. Do you think God loves you? Do you think God cares for you? Do you think God walks with you? 
Do you think God is aware of you? Do you think God wants what's best for you in his overall scheme? What we think about God matters. In the remainder of this first hymn, verses 10 through 14, and I didn't say that earlier, there's two hymns divided into three, verse, three chapters here in, in Nahum. This is the first one. We, discovered, we discover God's promise. Here's God's promise to Nineveh. They will be entangled among the thorns. They will be drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one, from you, Nineveh has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises, liquid, uh, devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I've afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear their shackle, your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy images and idols that are in your temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. The next thing we learn about God is that God is fully able. Chapters 2 and 3 of Nineveh form another hymn. It's a lengthy hymn. And it's a hymn that has structure. It's a poetic structure. And it's a poetic structure. I'm going to use a word that you may or may not know. It's called chiasm. It's a, it's a structure that almost forms like a V. Starts here, here, and kind of comes to a V. So you start up here, and there's going to be a celebration. We'll see that in uh, 115 uh, through about uh, 2. Uh, two. And, then, and then from celebration, it moves to this prophetic vision. And then from the prophetic vision, there's a divine taunt. God actually taunts his enemies. And from that divine taunt, there's going to be a declaration, this is what I'm going to do. And then by the time we get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, God pr pronounces his, the final demise of, of them. It's his final pronouncement. It starts with woe. From that pronouncement, we go back to a declaration, back to a divine taunt, back to a prophetic vision, and we end in chapter 3 and verse 19 with a celebration again. So that's what's going on here. And, and Nahum is prophesying to the Assyrians. Now what has happened by this point in time is the Assyrians have conquered massive territories. And, and, and when they did that, when they conquered someone, they did horrific things. They did horrific things to anybody who was captured. If you were in battle against the Assyrians, it would be better to have died on the battlefield than to have been caught and captured by the Assyrians. And one of the things that is specific in here is in chapter 3 and verse 8, where God says through Nahum, Are you better than Thebes? situated on the Nile with water around her. Thebes was a great city in the north part of Africa near the Nile and it was supposed to have been protected because of the river around it and all. The Assyrians overtook Thebes and he goes on, yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. The Assyrians thought that the infants had no value 
had no value for sending off into exile. And so they just wholesale slaughtered. That's who they were. That's what kind of people they were. And God says, Nineveh, not only are you no better than thieves, you're not stronger than thieves. But Nineveh, Assyria, is at the height of their power. Nobody. Nobody can defeat them. So hearing Nahum's words or reading Nahum's words to them comes across as empty bravado. But God is able. And history bears it out. In 612 B.C., the armies of this upstart nation called Babylon, under the leadership of a man by the name of Nabopolassar, invaded the land of Assyria. And they laid siege to the city of Nineveh. And within three months, the city was overrun completely. Three years later, 609 B.C., the nation of Assyria is now wiped off the face of the map and has never been heard from again. In fact, the the city of Nineveh was wiped out, and it wasn't until 1842 that an archaeologist in a dig began to rediscover where the city of Nineveh was. Nobody, now, nobody can tell you today, oh, I'm a descendant of the Assyrians. No, there are no, there there were none left. The, The Babylonians wiped them out. The, the events that Nahum prophesies were prophesied 30 years before they came, to about, came about. He says in chapter 3 and verse 12, All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit, yet when they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. In other words, they're, they're loaded with fig trees. You just shake them. In, three, in 614, all the fortified cities of Assyria began to be run over. 314, draw water for the siege, strengthen your defenses, work the clay, tread the mortar, repair the brickwork. The city of Nineveh will work hard to be ready. They, they've put out all these emergency defenses, and yet archaeology shows that when they discovered Assyria, or when they discovered Nineveh, the, the parts of the moat were filled with rocks and stone and mud and bricks were piled up behind a wall that had been breached. In 311 we read, You will become too drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. In chapter 1 and verse 10, we read, They will be entangled among the thorns, drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. A historian named Diodorus wrote in 20 B.C. that the Assyrian king, during the siege, had distributed meats, liberal supplies of wine, and the soldiers were attacked by the enemy at night because they were so drunk they were asleep and the enemy prevailed. In 1.8 we read, An overwhelming flood will make an end to Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. In 2.6 we read, The river gates are thrown open, the palace collapses. In 2.8 We read, Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. 
Diodorus also described heavy rains that caused the nearby river to flood, breaking down parts of the city wall. Another ancient historian, Xenophon, says that the reports of a terrifying thunder happened during the siege, that there was archaeological evidence that a gate that controlled the flow of the river running through Nineveh was was destroyed, so the river just flowed through, it flooded. 110, we read, they will be consumed like dry stubble. In chapter 2, verse 13, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke. The sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. 3.15, we read, There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. They will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Each of these verses speak of destruction by fire. And archaeologists have found that the temple in Nineveh was burned and no other parts of the city and and other parts of the city were destroyed by fire. 114, we read about the destruction of carved images and idols. Excavations found that the statue of the goddess Ishtar was lying headless. In the ruins of Nineveh. In 1 9, where we talked about what do you think about God, God says, Trouble won't come a second time. He says, No descendants will bear your name. And, and in fact, in 1 14, we see that again. And these verses speak of a final destruction. Nineveh has never been rebuilt, Assyria has never been heard from again. What do we learn? Okay, Pastor Scott, that's a neat little jaunt through history. God is able. God is able to do all that he says he will do. Not only in the prophecies at the ends of these nations, but God is able to fulfill the promises he makes to you and me. When you see the power of God displayed in Scripture... When you see the power of God displayed in all of this destruction, take a step back and realize God is able. God is able to sustain me. God is able to sustain you. We we read it earlier, God's our refuge and strength. He's able. And yet in the midst of all of that, remember when we were reading through chapter 1 and we hit verse 7 and we read, the Lord is good. And you say, how? How can that be? I want you to remember today, God is good. God is a good God. And I think what I see in the prophet of Nahum is that balance. It's a balance that was best described in the very first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, when the kids are all there and they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're in Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's home, and they're beginning to talk about Aslan, and finally Lucy turns to Mr. Beaver, and she says, but is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver says, haven't you heard, child? He is not safe, but he's good. Our God is a consuming fire, but he's good. He's a good God. You see, 
going back over these descriptions, verse 1 of chapter 1, God is a good God who's also a jealous God. Now, I know we hear that word jealous, and we always hear it in negative terms. We always have this negative connotation. You have something, I'm jealous. You have, I'm jealous of what you have. Or I'm so jealous, I want to control you. But I think there's another word that I think is a better word. It's the synonym, zealous. I'm for something. I'm, I'm passionate about it. I will tell you right now, there is a sense in which I am a jealous husband. I will accept no substitutes. My relationship with Charlene is exclusive. That doesn't mean she doesn't have friends. She has friends. She even has friends at work who are, are men, and, and, and you know what? She's very quick to introduce me to them, and they become my friends. But there is a level of relationship I have with my wife that no other human being on this planet shares. I, when I communicate with my wife via email or text, there are emoticons I use that I never use with any other person. Nobody else gets the smiley with the kiss. Just my wife. Not even my kids. My son would think it was weird. When I am zealous in my relationship with my wife, because I promised God, and I promised her, and I promised a bunch of other people that were at First Baptist Church in Plano, Illinois, on May 23rd, 1981, that forsaking all others, I would be true to her. God is also a good God who's jealous because he's jealous about our relationship with him and his relationship with us, and he will accept no substitutes. That's why I say anything or anyone that comes between you and your relationship with God is an idol. God is a good God, but we learn here that he's also an avenging God. A good God is an avenging God. How can that be? How can you put the two together? But I'm going to tell you, I need an avenging God. I need a God who will stand up for truth and justice. I need a God who will fight for me. I need a God who will exact punishment against evil in ways I could never do. Do you really want a God who soft pedals sin? I don't. Do you really want a God who kind of looks the other way when it's you who've been sinned against? I don't. Do you want a God who will negotiate with evil? I don't. I want a God who responds to sin with a righteous wrath that eradicates sin. And what we can look forward to from Nahum is the fact that God, in his great love, paid the price for sin. The song says the, upon the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. And I know in our 
hypersensitive way. We don't want to talk about the wrath of God. But that's what happened. God is against sin. And the only way to pay the price was to send Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and mine so that the full payment of sin, the full penalty of sin was satisfied. God is an avenging God. But notice it says God is slow to anger. A good God is a patient God. God God doesn't just fly off the handle. God isn't one of these guys that says, that's it, zap, you're done. No, God's patient. He gave Nineveh a hundred years to figure it out. He gave Israel multiple generations to figure it out. He's patient with you and me right now. He is a God who gives second and third and fourth chances. But when he says, that's it, time's up, I mean it. He means it. And there are consequences. God is a good God. A good God is a refuge. That word refuge, it means stronghold. It means fortress. It means protection. It's a place of safety. We read about it already today, didn't we? He's our refuge and strength. No matter what is going on around you, no matter what seems to be falling in, no matter what seems to be falling apart, God is your refuge. You don't need to be afraid. Personally, I'm, I'm a little weary, and I, 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 it's been a, years I've been feeling this way. I, I don't ever in conversation when someone say, it's really scary out there. I don't need to be afraid. Oh, I'm concerned about things. I'm concerned about what goes on. I'm concerned about injustice. I'm concerned about uh, the way the uh, systemic racism. I'm concerned about all of that. But it's not scary. Because God is my refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. In the midst of the noise of life, in the midst of the struggles of life, I can be still and I can know that he is God. And notice he cares for those who trust in him. You see, if you're not trusting in God, if you're not depending on him, if you're not running to him, if you're not clinging to him, you won't sense his goodness and you won't sense his care. You won't sense him being a refuge. It is really easy. And we're all guilty of it. It's really easy to make life work on my terms. To try to manipulate and to control the circumstances to work in the way I think I want them to work. It's really easy to do that. And when I'm busy trying to make life work on my terms, I don't have the time to be still and know that he is God. Because I've got to plan, I've got to prepare, I've got to do all this other stuff. It doesn't mean we don't take responsibility for things. It means that I don't let it consume me. When I learn to rest in his presence and not just do things for God, but just to learn to, to be with God, I'll find his presence to be real and powerful and good. Isn't that the essence of relationship? Just learning to be with someone, learning to enjoy just their presence. Learning to just be there and not even anyone having to say anything. Just to be, that's what it means to rest. 
And you say, well, how do I know if I'm not trusting in God? I, I want a little, little formula here. What does God say in his word about, and you fill in the blank. What does God tell me about trusting in blank, and you fill it in. And if you can't go back to the word of God and say, oh, this is what God says about that, then maybe that's something that you care about a lot more than God does because he wants you to trust him. When I was a freshman at Moody, my dad was fired from his church. Lots of wrong reasons. I won't go into those. That and his they they were so kind that they made his last day December 31st. So he had to lead the church through Christmas and then be done. He had known, he had kind of seen it coming. And for about three years, had put his name out in different places and never was able to just kind of quietly walk away and go to another ministry. The week after his last day, about 25 or 30 people met in the house that they were going to have to vacate because they lived in a parsonage. So they were residentially challenged, or homeless, however you want to say that. And they said, Pastor Howington, we believe your ministry is still valid. And we'd like you to consider helping us start a new church. Oh, my dad did not like that. He didn't want to be competing with another church across town. Salina, Kansas, where I lived, was about 40,000. 40,000 people in the middle of Kansas is kind of like a small town. Everybody knew everything. But God wouldn't let him say no, and my dad started a church. And he told the people, he said, we're going to trust God in starting this new work. And uh, my wife and I will not take a salary. Now, my older sister was married. She was already living in, in West Virginia. My younger sister uh, was, she was in high school. I was in college. And my mom and dad had to find a place to rent. And there was just all other things. And for six months, my mom and dad believed that God was their refuge and strength, that God was able that God was fully able, that God was good, and that God would provide. And I'm here to tell you, they never missed a rent payment. They never missed a, uh, any bill they, God provided. I had, work, I had gone to school for a year before I went to, to Moody. And in that year, I had been able to be on a full-ride scholarship with grants and things like that. And so I worked. And I had saved up enough money that my whole first year of Moody was, was paid for. And, and that kind of rolled into the other years. But So they didn't have to worry about my college bill. I remember one day they got a letter in the mail. It was from a friend who had moved out of the area but knew them, knew what was going on. And in the letter was a sizable check. And my friend said, we were praying about you at our church this week and we felt led to send this to you. We hope you'll be blessed. And it 
week in and week out for six months. My mom and dad trusted God. They believed that God was able. They believed that God was their refuge. Now, I'm not saying that God's telling you to do that. But I am saying that God is there. And he already knows what you're going to face today, tomorrow. And he's already there. And he already knows what he, what he wants you to do. He just wants you to cling to him and to trust him. In 115, God pronounces peace because a good God wants peace for those he cherishes. And, and notice what it says here. 115, look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Now, God, the prophet is saying that like it's already happened. It's some 35 years away. But God says, I'm pronouncing peace. And a, and a tangible way from that peace would be one day God's going to remove the Assyrians from there. Then promises, chapter 2, verse 2, promises the restoration of the nation. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob. True peace and true restoration only comes from a holy God who's able. We can look elsewhere in the Bible and it'll point us to that greater peace. Nahum has looked back to Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who brings good news. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 11 to 15 says, speaks of that same peace where he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God is a good God. And the question today is, have you come to know God on his terms? Have you truly believed in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins? The sad reality was Nineveh was treated just as their sins deserved. They went back to being brash and arrogant and warring and harsh and deceitful and prideful. They treated every person with harshness and cruelty. And they got what they deserved. God will allow no middle ground. You can't play games with God and win. Oh, you can play games with him. You'll always lose. He's a good God, but he's not safe. He's a good God who knew that you couldn't pay the price for your sins, so he did it for you through Christ. And he's a good God who wants you and me to experience his peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, not as the world leaves, give I unto you. How can we experience that peace? We put all of our faith and trust in him. We truly trust him as our refuge, as our strength, as our fortress. And when we do that, we, we then learn what it means day in and day out how to live in obedience to his word. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be, on this earth, we're always going to have to re, come, kind of re, come back and start over because we struggle. None of us reach perfection here. But as we grow, we learn that then I can 
reflect him because I am made in his image like every other person and therefore I need to show others the grace I've received. I need to show others the kind of love I've received from God. I need to be merciful to others as God has been merciful to me. I let him exact his vengeance in his time. I don't go around trying to get back at someone. I don't go try around trying to make them pay or get even. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I trust him to deal with it. But I stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. I speak for those who can't speak for themselves. And I trust God with the rest. And when you and I see God and realize that he's a God who loves us, That he's a God who's able. He's a God who is a good God. That he's a God who wants us to have his peace. Then what we think about him is going to draw us closer to him. What do you think about God today? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder this morning from the book of Nahum. It's a a tough book. I, I know that. We all know that. And yet, it's it's the book that you had for us today. May we remember, and may we think rightly about you, and let your word drive that thinking. May we remember that you are a God who's able, that you are a God who's good, and that you are a God who wants us to truly have that peace that passes all understanding in the depth of our hearts. And we will give you all the glory and the praise as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.